Good morning, Calvary. Good morning. Glad that you came to the 9 o'clock service this morning. And if you have your Bible, let's open together to Luke chapter 6. So there's a few spaces left that we can fill. Your neighbors are going to want to come hear about Jesus from Luke. Martin Lloyd-Jones wrote a book on Luke chapter 6, which we're going to preach on today. He wrote uh, a large book and uh, had, say moi, had 26 sermons. We're going to do one. It is really agony in my week to study this chapter and, um, and know that we're going to leave some on the floor, on the cutting room floor. But if you have your Bible, I want you to open to Luke chapter 6. It is the Sermon on the Mount from Matthew chapter 5, 6, and 7. Undoubtedly, Matthew... Um, and Luke record the message that Jesus preached in his inaugural address, Sermon on the Mount from Matthew 5 through 7. Luke had accounts of it, and Luke's account is shorter, but likely Matthew and Luke recorded the same sermon content. Perhaps it was repeated, likely, again and again by Jesus in places that he went when he went to a new town. There are variations to Matthew and Luke's account of this sermon, um, but they're very similar. His sermon restated in many ways what you have likely heard in the Beatitudes. Matthew gives nine Beatitudes. Luke gives four. Uh, they're slightly different in rendering, perhaps because of synonyms that were used, but basically this sermon, beginning in Luke chapter 6 and verse 20 is um, Jesus' message about the kingdom and Jesus' message about the foundational truths of what it means to have life with Him. Some think of the Sermon on the Mount or the Sermon on the Plain, as Luke puts it, as a moral code. Uh, it's not really primarily a moral code, or as principles to live by, which, of course, it is, but it's more than that, or as a way to earn your salvation by complying with the words of Jesus, and, of course, it is not primarily that. It is not that at all. It is reflection of the life of one who is under the rule of the king who's bringing his kingdom to the world. And really what the essence of the message from verse 20 to the end of the chapter is about is about understanding that being a follower of Jesus is more than words. It involves all of life. When you come to Jesus, it's not what we say to him, but it's what happens to us as we yield to him. It's not about merely words to be a follower, but it's a matter of all of life. The sermon begins with the Beatitudes and woes, um, but it explains the kind of life that a, is true of a person who's under the rule of the king, who has come into the world, the son of man. There's a special emphasis on love and the outcomes of a life that are glorious when one yields to Jesus as he is. There were a great multitude of people attracted to his teaching but this was a teaching unlike anything they had ever heard before. 
In fact, one commentator said the teaching of Jesus then and now shatters all of man's basic foundational thinking. It destroys our motives if we're secular or we're religious. It turns the world upside down. It turns man's thinking on its head. The teaching of Jesus then and now is not politically correct. Neither is it conventional wisdom. In fact, the teaching of Jesus is alien to, alien to everything we consider to be true in the natural mind. It runs counter to everything. It is the antithesis of human ideas and human motivations, end quote. This sermon changes all of human thinking because there's never been a teacher like Jesus. No one spoke like him. No one taught like him. We said last week that he spoke the words of God because he is God. And his teaching was unlike any other. You have the unique privilege to have a Bible in your hand, to open it up, and to read the words of Jesus, and to sit under his teaching. Do you take that as a treasure? You have the words of Christ no one taught like him. The end of the Sermon on the Mount in Matthew says they were all astonished at his teaching because he taught as one with authority, not like the scribes. There's a lot of teaching around, but the words of Jesus are unlike anything else. Now, if you want to understand the heart and the soul of this message, you need to grasp the issue of the paradoxes that are found throughout this sermon. The paradoxes of who is blessed and who is cursed or has a woe on them. The paradox of someone who loves like a follower of Jesus loves or loves like someone who doesn't know Jesus. The paradox of a good tree that bears good fruit to a bad tree that bears bad fruit, and the paradox of one who builds his spiritual life on a firm foundation and has a consequent result of that to one who builds his or her life on an unsure foundation and has a devastating result of that. You get the paradoxes, and they all drive one point home. To be a follower of Jesus is not a matter of words. It's a matter of your whole life with Jesus. And so before we go further, could I just draw you to think what side of the paradoxes will you be on? Blessing or woe? Which tree? Which house are you building? What result will come? This is the authority of Jesus. Let's begin with the, the Beatitudes. The, verse 20. Let me read 20 through 23, and then we'll look at each of them. And he lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of God. Blessed are you who are hungry now, for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Blessed are you when people hate you and when they exclude you and revile you and spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. Rejoice in that day and leap for joy, for behold, your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets. 
Anybody want to say amen to that? Wow. This is Jesus saying, what is the blessed life? Well, verse 20. He lifted up his eyes on his disciples and said to them, Blessed are you who are poor, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. I mentioned to you that these four statements make a mockery of the world's wisdom. They are Jesus' authoritative word. Blessed are you who are poor. Luke is brief. Matthew is more elaborate. Matthew's rendition says, which is implied here, I think, more explicitly, blessed are you who are poor in spirit. I don't believe Jesus is making a word about economic status but about spiritual quality. Blessed are you who are poor in spirit, who are broken on the inside, for yours is the kingdom of heaven. The poverty of spirit is the admission and the acknowledgement of our own spiritual bankruptcy before God. And he said, you're happy if you understand you have nothing when it comes to coming to God in your own strength. You see how this is an assault to human wisdom? It is, right? We all want to earn our way to heaven. We want to say that we're good enough that God would accept us. But Jesus said the happy life is the life who on the interior side of us says, I am poor, broken, bankrupt before God, and I need your mercy and grace. Yours is the kingdom of heaven. This is the key to entrance into the kingdom of heaven is a brokenness of spirit. You'll remember the publican and the Pharisee in uh, Luke chapter 18. Jesus told a parable. Why don't you just turn there for a minute? Just a few chapters to the right, Luke 18. Um, he told this parable, verse 9, Luke 18, verse 9. To some who, boy, if you're reading your scripture, it's powerful. To some who trusted in themselves that they were righteous and treated others with contempt. Two men went up to the temple to pray, a Pharisee and the other a tax collector, and the Pharisee standing by himself prayed this way, God, I thank you that I'm, I'm sure he had a spiritual voice. God, I thank you that I am not like other men, extortioners, unjust, adulterers, or even like this tax collector. I fast twice a week. I give tithes to all that I get. You get the smugness, right? He's rich in his spirit and poor toward God. But the tax collector, the tax collector standing far off, would not even lift his eyes to heaven, beat his breast, and said, God, be merciful to me, a sinner. That's poverty of spirit. I'm broken. I have nothing. I need the mercy of God. I know who God is, and I know who I am. They must rely on God. And then notice that it says, yours is the kingdom of heaven, the kingdom of God. Not will be. You are a resident. You are a citizen of the kingdom. He is your king. That is already true. So poor is the first spirit toward God. Nothing in my hand I bring. Only to Christ I cling. Next. Blessed are you who are hungry now, 
for you shall be satisfied. Blessed are you who are hungry now, you'll be satisfied. Um, and even the next one we'll see together, blessed are you who weep now, for you shall laugh. Luke implies what Matthew says explicitly, you hunger and thirst for righteousness. Those with need are satisfied. Those who don't hunger and thirst for that are satisfied with what they have, which we'll see. You weep now. There's just a sensitivity in your heart to evil and a conviction and a consciousness toward sin in my own life, suffering in the brokenness of this world, the brokenness of my own life. I just know that what my condition is before God is it, want, it leads me to a sense of poverty, brokenness, weeping that I need God so desperately. That's where Jesus is saying and, and where he's leading. But you will laugh. You will have joy. The outcome will be that. And then verse 22 and 23, which say, Blessed are you when people hate you, when they exclude you, when they revile you, when they spurn your name as evil on account of the Son of Man. That is because Christ, you know him and you love him, but you're rejected by others you are holding on to the one who was also rejected by men. And you know him. And Jesus said, that's the happy place to be. With Jesus, even if the world hates me. I've decided to follow Jesus. Though none go with me, still I'll follow. The world behind me, the cross before me. You know, these, these great words that say, if that happens, but I have Christ, I am blessed. You see how contrary this is to human thinking? I mean, it just runs against everything that we have grown up thinking about ourselves. And Jesus says this here. Jesus, by the way, in this verse, suggests the possibility that may be true of you today, that it is possible on the one hand to have great trouble and to have great joy. Blessed are you if you are persecuted, rejected, because you're a Christian, you are scorned, because you have certain commitments in your life and other people mock you, rejoice. How do you do that? How do you rejoice in that, knowing that your reward is great in heaven, for so their fathers did to the prophets? All those who were true prophets went through experiences like this. And Jesus simply said, if they did this to me, will they do it to you? They may. And this creates a dividing line for some people to say, well, then I, I, that's a cost too great to be rejected by people. And Jesus said, no, great is your reward in heaven. You should rejoice and be glad for that. But it goes against everything that is human in us, does it not? And that's why we need him in our life. Side of the paradox, blessed and then the woes. The next section begins in verse 24. Woe to you who are rich. These, go, these are parallel. Woe to you who are rich. You have received your consolation. Woe to you who are full now. You'll be hungry. Woe to those who laugh now. You'll mourn. Woe to you when people speak well of you. For so they, the fathers did of the false prophets. The woes are an expression of regret and compassion in Jesus. He is saying, this is not the way you want to live. 
but I, he's compassionate. It's not really a threat, I don't think, in the strictest way that Jesus is condemning them, but just saying, oh, how horrible if this is true of you, if you are, in verse 24, woe to you who are rich now. That is, you have all that you need so that you don't need God. You're in danger. Jesus is saying, whoa, caution. You will regret this if you are fully satisfied with what you currently have now. These are traits that universally people consider coveted. We'd all like to be rich. Yes? We'd like that. We'd all like to be full. Satiated is the idea of the next verse. We want to laugh and not weep now. We, We want all of these qualities here and now. And Jesus said, if that's what you want more than any other thing, like being poor in spirit and broken before God, You will have those things without God, and that will be it. The paradox is where your heart is. Where where is your heart on these things? These blessings described in these three verses, 24 through 26, um, correspond to the Beatitudes on the other side. They are the paradox of it. And these blessings actually become a problem if they cultivate in us a sense of self-reliance that I have all I need, I have my resources, if I become self-dependent and have no need of God. That's his point. Verse 26 says, Woe to you when people speak well of you, for their fathers did this to the false prophets. When the false prophets spoke, um, you know, they preached a prosperity or it's all going to be good. And people love that. When you think about the true prophets, how many of the true prophets came out to speak the word of God? I feel, you know, I'm not a prophet. I'm a preacher, but I'm preaching this to you. And I'm wondering how many of you are saying, oh, come on. This is a downer. But if I said, you could be rich today. You know, we're going to take an offering and you give there. You'll be rich. And people flock to that. And Jesus said, that's not where it starts. It starts with the poverty of soul. And it doesn't matter how rich you are, how full you are, how happy you are, if God is not there. So this message was a bombshell on the mountain. And the paradox of what sets the kingdom apart. So, now it says, <laughs> let me just say this about, um, woe to you who laugh now, for you shall mourn. Just be careful about that. Do you think Jesus laughed in his ministry? I totally do think he did. And I think he had to chuckle all the time at the disciples. When they, do you understand what I'm saying? Oh, yeah, 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 yeah. And Jesus, I imagine Jesus wandering down the road and saying, what do you think he meant? I don't know what he meant. What he meant. And I, I think Jesus was nurturing these disciples along. And, and, you know, he ate and drank 
with Levi and you know he he had a he knew how to go to a party and have fun so when you read this woe to you who laugh now you will mourn and weep and the earlier beatitude blessed are you if you weep you know just take that it's it's stating about an interior sense of brokenness before God which actually leads to joy and rejoicing and happiness and the blessed life so we don't, we don't read this here that we're going to be dour in everything. Please? Okay. Jesus moves on. We're, we're going to move on to another category in the sermon. The sermon really is about love. Loving your enemies. And in verse 27, Jesus continues, but I say to you who hear, and I hope that's you, you who hear, love your enemies, do good to those who hate you, bless those who curse you, and pray for those who abuse you. If you're underlining in your Bible in verse 27, 28, if you hear, you love, and then you do good, and then you pray for. These are three actions that Jesus calls for for someone in the kingdom who has experienced the life of Jesus in them. I love people, I do good to them, and I pray for them. This is a progress of developing a life for those who even are enemies. He goes on, if one strikes you on the cheek, offer the other from one who takes your cloak, don't withhold your tunic. Give to everyone who begs from you, from one who takes away from your goods. Don't demand them back. And as you wish that others would do to you, so do to them. In this section, Jesus is describing an exemplary God kind of love, which should be characteristic of those who belong to Christ. It is the love that God has for us, is it not? God is love. God so loved the world that he gave his only son. Paul speaks in Ephesians chapter 4, be kind to one another, tenderhearted, forgiving each other as God in Christ has forgiven you. Be imitators of God, beloved children. Walk in love as Christ loved us and gave himself up for us as a fragrant offering to God. What Jesus is doing is introducing a kind of love that resembles God and calls us to really abandon every human impulse about the way we treat other people and say that when we are mistreated, there is somehow, by God's grace, a capacity to react differently than the way the world reacts. Why? Because Jesus is our Savior. Here's how he explains it. Let me see if I can help with the way that goes on. Uh, ju just one more thing about verse 31, which is not on the screen. As you wish that others would do to you, do to them. This is the golden rule, right? This is where many people look at the Sermon on the Mount and say, this is the moralistic teaching. Do unto others as you would have them do unto you. This principle already exists in, existed in somewhat of a negative way. It was put this way by a great famous Jewish rabbi, uh, Hillel, who said, what is hateful to yourself, do not 
do to someone else. What you don't want done to yourself, don't do to someone else. That was already well known. What you don't want someone to do, don't do to them. Jesus turns it to the positive and says, what you want others to do to you, do to them positively with initiative. You start and you do that. Why? Because you are like your father in heaven and he starts, he loves when we're not loving him. He comes after us when we're not coming after him. He is generous to the just and the unjust, which we're going to see. But now here's how it goes. So you're looking now at verse 32. If you love those who love you, what benefit is that to you? For even sinners love those who love them. That is a key phrase to understanding Jesus' teaching here. It's repeated again at the end of verse 34, for even sinners lend to sinners and get back the same amount. What Jesus is doing is comparing the way sinners love and the way members of the kingdom love. Sinners love those who love them. What he's saying is that the way that world operates is if you rub my back, I will rub yours. You take care of me, I'll take care of you. Sinners love those who love them. Now, sinners is used here. We're all sinners, but he's making a paradoxical comparison of those who are kingdom people and follow Jesus and those who don't yet. And the way sinners live in the world is sinners love those who love them, and they lend to those who will lend back to them. But you are a citizen of the kingdom, and you know the king who loves unconditionally an agape kind of love that doesn't need a return, but loves because he is love. And this is the invitation to love in a different way. Verse 35 on the screen. But love your enemies and do good and lend, expecting nothing in return, and your reward will be great. And you will be sons of the Most High, for he is kind to the ungrateful and the evil. Be merciful as your Father is merciful. Wow. This is Jesus' kind of thinking that blows up human logic and motivation and activity. He's illustrating that there's an attitude to have when you're injured, don't seek revenge and be like your father in heaven. What he's saying is that if you go back to the whole sweep of the, of the teaching, followers of Jesus who really know his word are true repenters of their own sinfulness because they're broken and they know how to love their enemy as God has loved them. It is so radical that it only can come if Jesus is your Savior. Because in the context of this illustration, sinners, people who don't know Jesus, do not know how to love their enemy. You say it again. Sinners don't know how to love their enemy. They hate their enemy. And want to destroy him. But children of the kingdom who know Jesus know by his power, not by human strength, but by the power of God in us, know how to love our enemy, know how to do good to those who do bad to us, and know how to lend. 
not trying to set up an arrangement that you will have to lend to me later. Anytime lending happened, it is anticipated that the debt will be repaid. That, that's not to suggest that you lend and a, and a loan won't be repaid, but you lend and you're not trying to work that person so that they will lend to you later. Why is that? Because you are sons of the Most High. Suddenly, your life is changed and you're under His authority. See that? There's so many other places we could go, but if, you're, if you have a second, and you do, because we're not done yet, just turn to the right. Turn to your right in your Bible. Paul takes it up in Romans chapter 12, and let me just see if I can help with, with this, which is hard. What, what do you do with an enemy who, um, you know, how much do you give to an enemy who really wants to do you wrong? And Paul helps us a little bit. Verse 14 of Romans 12. Bless those who persecute you. Bless and don't curse them. Rejoice with those who rejoice. Weep with those who weep. Live in harmony with one another. Don't be haughty, but associate with the lowly. Never be wise in your own sight. Here's verse 17. Repay no one evil for evil. Someone does you wrong, don't pay them back wrong. But give thought to do what is honorable in the sight of all, if it's possible, which implies that sometimes it's not. If possible, so far as it depends on you, live peaceably with all people. Never avenge yourself, but leave it to the wrath of God, for it is written, vengeance is mine, I will repay, says the Lord. What Paul is saying is that you will be done wrong by people. Anybody been done wrong by people? I, I was thinking about it this week, praying about preparing for this and trying not to be spiritual and just give all these platitudes about this sermon and say, it really hurts when people do you wrong. And we all have been done wrong by people. We live in a broken, fallen world, and we've done people wrong. But when it happens, Paul says, don't return evil for evil. Jesus saying, don't return evil. Love your enemy. Do good to them. Pray for them. Why? Because this is the way you indicate that your life with Jesus is different. Any questions? It's hard, isn't it? It's a radical thing to belong to Jesus, but Jesus is saying, it is not about your words with Jesus. It's not about what you say. It's about what you do, because you do know him. But we've got to skip the next section, which I'm sorry. I, I want to go to the last section on um, the two foundations. So verse 46, and this is the best way to close. Verse 46, why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I tell you? This is very convicting, but being a follower of Jesus is not more about our profession, but it's really about our life. Why do you call me Lord, Lord, and not do what I say? Lord, Lord means teacher, master, or master, teacher, a teacher of all teachers. It's like an emphatic way of saying, you are the one, you are the authoritative teacher, and I see you. It's good to call him Lord. 
if you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. So it's good to call him Lord. But Jesus asked a question, why do you call me your Lord and you don't do what I say? That is a very convicting question for Americans in our day. The number of people say they're a follower of Jesus, but then if you look at life and life decisions, does that line up with what Jesus has said? And he gives the final paradox in the chapter. It's like comparing two people. I will show you what it's like, verse 47 and 48 says. I'll show you what it's like. Everyone who comes to me and hears my words and everybody does them. You hear the words of Jesus and you do them. You will be like a man building a house. And this is how the house is built. He dug deep and laid a foundation on the rock. This is a spiritual analogy of spiritual work on the interior of your life. You dig deep and you excavate what needs to be excavated. And you find, I have nothing here. I'm poor in spirit. I repent of what is in there. And I, I bring it to you. And I lay the foundation of my life on another foundation that is the rock. An Old Testament familiar reference to God as our fortress, our strength, our rock our shield, our high tower. We run into him and we're saved. It's building a life on God and Christ. And what happens is that when the flood rises, which is a foreshadowing of future judgment, the end analysis, it's not about a rainstorm in 2013 that takes our houses out in Boulder. It's like standing before God and the judgment comes, and our life gives an account at the end, and it stands because what's been excavated is my sinfulness, what's been acknowledged to God is my poverty, and what's been brought to my life is the foundation of Christ in my life, and I will stand in the judgment. Not because of me, but because of Christ in me. That's what that man's like, who hears the words and does them. And what about the one who doesn't hear and does? Everyone who hears and does not do them is like a man who builds his house on the ground without a foundation. And when the stream breaks, the devastation is obvious. Jesus is foreshadowing a judgment at the end of life that a life without Christ is lost. Are you glad you came to church today? I mean, this is, you, you don't hear this. This is not human teaching. This is Jesus teaching. What is at stake? Are you blessed or are you woefully inadequate for eternity? Are you on the foundation of Christ or without him? Are you just a listener? but not a doer, like you haven't, you haven't quite stepped over. I imagine Jesus talking to thousands of people in this moment, and there were many there who were unconvinced, many who were just saying, well, I saw what you did there. I want to I see more. 
And they hadn't really come to the place where they said, God, when it comes to you, I, I need you in my life. And they hadn't made that decision. And so they're watching and listening and um, calling him Lord, but not doing what he says will be devastating. Now let me finish this way. To all who receive Christ, to them he gives the authority, the power to become children of God, even to those who believe on his name. This is a warning, but the invitation is broad. If you confess with your mouth Jesus is Lord and believe that God raised him from the dead, you will be saved. Neither is there salvation in any other name under heaven given among men whereby you must be saved except the name of Jesus Christ. These, this, the heart of this sermon is an invitation and a warning. Because God so loved the world that he, his love is kind, but it's a warning and it's an invitation. And then the paradoxes show which choice will you make. I urge you to call upon the name of the Lord and be saved. And to not just be a hearer of the word, but a doer also. That's where security, joy, peace, and life as God intended is. Let's pray together. Oh, Father, I thank you for the teaching of Jesus, which has authority unlike any other. It humbles us. It actually generates in my soul a sense of poverty before you. I, I need you. I have nothing. I pray for Jesus to be merciful to me, a sinner. And I thank you that the promise of Jesus is I will. And I will give you joy. And I will give you peace. And I will give you a foundation that will stand against all the trials, including the coming judgment of God. You will stand firm because Christ is your master. Lord, Lord, lead us to this place of building our life on you, the solid foundation. Lord Jesus, be the, the rock and the cornerstone of our life, we pray. And guide us in all of these difficult challenges of bringing Jesus' words to bear on life. And thank you that while we're unable, you are able to do in us what we can't generate. So, Master, Master, Lord, Lord, be our Lord, we pray in Jesus' name. Amen.